Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. A psalm for thanksgiving. Shout joyfully to the Lord all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful singing. Know that the Lord himself is God. It is he who has made us and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. For the Lord is good. His loving kindness is everlasting and his faithfulness to all generations. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray as we come to it this morning that you would, you would help us to give our attention to it. Father, that our minds would be set on things above, that our ears would be able to hear, that our eyes would be able to see. Father, that you would give us faith. Father, I pray that you would give us the ability to be humble before your word and to, and to repent as it convicts us of our sins. And Father, I pray that it would encourage us, that it would encourage us to live by faith and to look to you for all provision and for all of our needs. So bless us now as I preach your word. Bless the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts. May they be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Take a seat. So Psalm 100, a short little psalm. The first thing to note about the psalm I'm preaching this morning is that it has a heading. It has a heading, right? The psalm is for a defined purpose. It's for thanksgiving. It's for thanksgiving. And, and it's more literally, it's a song for a thank offering. This is to be offered before the Lord as a thank offering to him. So, so let's, let's begin there and simply think about what it means to give thanks, what it means to make an offering of thanksgiving. Thanksgiving, as you know very well, did not start with George Washington's proclamation naming Thursday, November 26th, 1789, a day of public thanksgiving. Uh, nor did it begin when the pilgrims gathered together with the Indians in Plymouth in the autumn of 1621. The people of God... All those who love the Psalms and sing them have been giving thanks to God, note that, to God, since the first man. Right, it was the first man who gave thanks when, when God presented him with a wonderful gift, his wife, Eve. He sang this song, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. In announcing the glory of the woman that was given to him, Adam was, was making a thank offering to the Lord. He was thanking God for this good gift. 
those remember what's significant about those words. They are the first, they are the first recorded words of Adam, thus of mankind. Like those words of praise and thanks to God. Thanksgiving, then, is what man was created to do. It's what we were created to do. We were created to sing the praises of the Creator God and give Him thanks. But the perversity and the unbelief of mankind is, is preeminently marked by its unwillingness to thank God. The Holy Spirit teaches us in Romans 1 that Well, the Apostle Paul argues that every man knows about God because God has made knowledge of him evident to them through his creation. But verse 21 of Romans 1 says, even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give him thanks. That's a a radically important verse. As if you know what I mean. They're all important. But this one stands out. And it stands out to, uh, to us particularly. There's a dividing line that runs through every nation. There's a dividing line that runs through every ethnicity. There's a dividing line that runs through every person um, between people that have ever been created. Those who give thanks to God and those who, though knowing they should, refuse to give thanks to Him. Those who give thanks to God, those who know they should, but will not do it. And coinciding with faith and regeneration as distinguishing characteristics of man is thankfulness. Thankfulness. There are some who recognize God as God, and there are some who know Him to be God, but treat Him as less than God, as less than nothing. Right? In a long list of terrible sins during the last days, the Apostle Paul mentions men who are ungrateful. 2 Timothy 3.2 Of such men, the Apostle also says, avoid such men as these. Thanklessness is so terrible that you should avoid people who are thankless. I mean, we think that's true of people who are perverse. Right? We think that is true of people who are pugnacious. But do we really think that's true of somebody who's just thankless? Who's not thankful? Well, that is what the Word of God says. Avoid such men as these. Ungratefulness or ingratitude or thanklessness is the kind of sin that should mark a person off as to be avoided by the faithful. That's convicting. That's convicting, especially if you struggle with ingratitude. The Christian, on the other hand, will be distinguished by his giving of thanks to God. Spurgeon writes this, The rendering of thanks is like the incense of the temple which filled the whole house with smoke. There should be a metaphorical cloud of incense all around us, both by our inward attitude and outward expression. Right? There should constantly be this this incense of thanksgiving surrounding us. The church should be known as the society of the thankful. We're We're the family of God and the society of the thankful. 
And that brings up a few questions for self-examination. Is thankfulness a characteristic of your life in Jesus Christ? Thankfulness. Are you awed by God's mercy towards you and properly thankful? Do you grieve the thanklessness of your heart? Does your pride, this, this is something you know when you struggle with pride as we all do, does your pride continually preempt or crowd out your expression of thanksgiving to other people and to God himself? And if you don't have a thankful heart, what does that indicate about what you think about God and what you think about his mercies, right, that are new every morning? The Christian is to be marked by constant thanksgiving. Two passages in in the New Testament make this abundantly clear. 1 Thessalonians 5.18, In everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. I mean, do we have to go any further? In everything give thanks, that's God's will for you. That is what you are to do. You want to know God's will? Be thankful and thank Him. Ephesians 5.20 says we are to walk in this manner, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. And then Hebrews 13.15, through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. That's to be our offering to God, the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. There's no way around this, brothers and sisters. We must have fruitful lips that give thanks to his name. The psalm is meant to be a means to that end. It trains our hearts and our mouths in thankfulness. The psalm begins with this exhortation. Shout joyfully to the Lord, all the earth. Shout joyfully to the Lord, all the earth. You may know it better from the King James Version. Make a joyful noise unto the Lord, all ye lands. Right? Those who can't sing like to think that that verse gives them sanction to add their ramblings to the singing of the congregation. Uh, that is not what this phrase really means. And uh, whether you can sing or not, you must. Right? It's a command of Scripture. Whether you have pitch or don't have pitch, you should sing. Kidner writes this, and it's funny. The joyful noise is not the special contribution of the tone deaf, still less of the convivial, right? The happy, clappy. But the equivalent in worship of an homage shout or fanfare to a king. It's, it's the equivalent of long live the king. Long live the king. Of, the, of a massive crowd of people shouting, long live the king. That sort of homage, praise. We are to declare our homage to Yahweh, to the triune God who created all things. We are to declare our allegiance to him, not with mumblings and murmurings, not with whispers, but with at least double the voice we give to our precious musical entertainers and, and football teams. Right? We should... Save voice for shouting the praise of God because in so doing, we're declaring our homage, our allegiance to him as king. That is exactly why it's very difficult 
for Christians to be nationalists because we live under a sovereign king. Note that this command is for all the earth, right? It says all the earth, shout joyfully to the Lord all the earth. All the people of the earth are called to show homage to the king of kings who rules over the nations. And so this verse claims for, for God the whole world. The whole world is God's. It's the duty of those who have been made by him to declare his greatness. And because of his greatness, those who refuse to do so show forth their incredible ingratitude. The mercies of God saturate the earth. The mercies of God are everywhere on the earth. And the ungrateful think there's a drought. They don't see any mercy anywhere. They don't see any goodness anywhere. The glories of God fill the earth, right? And the proud are bored with those glories. But we, we shout out praise and call all the people of the earth to properly give homage to God, to the King of Kings. And so, it goes on from there. Verse 2 begins by telling us, serve the Lord with gladness. There's a, there's a simple statement, but one that is difficult to execute. That one is a simple statement. Serve the Lord with gladness. Most directly, the verse is speaking of worship. Combined with the other half of the verse, this is clear. Come before him with joyful singing. This is, this is a manner in which we are to worship with, with gladness, with joyful singing, just like the shout of homage would be um, disrespectful to any king if it were mumbled. Worship that is lacking gladness and joyful singing is disrespectful to God. It is worship that does not properly view God, right? And it is worship that doesn't properly view God or the incredible greatness of his works of which you have been a beneficiary. He made you. He made a world for you to live in. He gives you your daily bread. He, shows, you know, he, he showers you with daily kindness. And then his son became a worm so that you might live. And our hearts begrudgingly serve God in worship. And our praises come out of half-open mouths. And our praises come out of disgruntled hearts and not glad hearts. And our praises come out stifled, going through the filter of our, our disappointment. Sometimes even our singing to God in worship is interrupted by a yawn. How can we be so short-sighted? How can we be so short-sighted? How can we be so blind to the glory of God? How can we be so similar to those worldlings I described earlier who feel no obligation to honor God or give Him thanks? This is not right. This is not right. This is not appropriate. This is not 
the way things ought to be. Our hearts are lukewarm toward the Lord. And what could possibly be the cause of that? What could possibly be the cause of that? I think today one of the causes is that we are swept up, I'm going to say it, in the politics of the world. We are swept up in the politics of the world. There is no reason why we shouldn't have a table, a seat at the table in the public square. There is no reason why we should not be engaged in polemics and arguing with people and and speaking forth prophetically out of the word. But that cannot come at the cost of knowing God and engaging simply in the worship and enjoyment of him. Do not, do not confuse your zeal for politics with zeal for the Lord. Don't confuse them. Are our hearts cold in worship because our minds are too set on the raging of the nations? Yes. Rather than critiquing the raging of the nations, we should worship the Lord by remembering and thinking on the fact that He sits in heaven laughing. He sits in heaven laughing at the raging of the nations. Remember the laughter of God. Remember that He steps back from this and laughs. He sees us arguing about masks and he steps back and he laughs at the raging of these foolish people. Remembering the laughter of God means you don't need to become a revolutionary. Right? That's what remembering the laughter of God does for us. We can step back, we can laugh along with, it, with him and we can have a sense of perspective that he's above it all. Wonderfully above it all. Remembering the laughter of God, his absolute knowledge of and sovereign will over everything that comes to pass, we can put, out, put our, our outrage away to do what? To engage in worship of the God who removed our sins from us as far as east is from west and who, whose son will come and judge the nations with the sword that comes from his mouth. So we must fill our minds with his powerful majesty, with God's powerful majesty, and worship will be, if not, our worship is going to be choked by the cares of the world. Let's not worry about the one who can kill the body, rather let's be mindful of the one who can kill both body and soul in hell. His awful glory, God's awful glory, deserves our attention and worship corporately, privately, publicly, devotionally. So let's hate the thought of becoming the kind of church who so does not tolerate evil men that she loses her sight for her first love. Like that church in Ephesus that's described in the second chapter of Revelation. Verse 3, we receive another exhortation. We've been told to shout, we've been told to serve, we've been told to come to him, and now to know, to know him. Know that the Lord himself is God, it is he who made us and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. 
the first part of the verse could be read this way. Know that Yahweh, he is Elohim. These important words for our, our God, the one true living God. The Holy Spirit is leading us to know and meditate on a certain characteristic of God, that he is the one who created us. We didn't fashion ourselves somehow. We were not self-assembled. God made us. God made us. That fact is incredibly important. No one at any point in history has been content to not have an answer to the question of how did we come to be. Everybody has been asking that question and wondering about it. Everybody has their theory, whether, I mean, and they go from absurd to, um, to absurder. Some alien civilization planted us here. I mean, that's pretty crazy, but really crazy is this, that the forces of nature combined with long stretches of time created us. Everybody wants an answer to the question of our start, of our origin. The scriptures, unlike any other religious text, begins by answering that question. And the answer is this, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's our testimony. It is he who made us. Now, what does that teach us about God? If he made us, he cares about us. If he made us, he cares about us. Have you, have you ever done creative work? Right? Perhaps you've flipped a house. Perhaps you've painted or drawn a picture or you've composed a musical composition or you've made an, arrangements of, uh, an arrangement of flowers that grew in your own yard, that you grew in your own yard. And when that work is complete, there is a joy and a concern that you have for it. There's a, there's a joy and a concern that you have for it. When it comes to musical composition, um, which is what I did for a while, the writing of it is not the completion of it. You still have to animate it by getting musicians together and making the notes on the page become sounds in the air. And often when I was doing that kind of work, I was conducting the compositions that I had written. So it was my job. Usually composers just like to hand it off and let someone else do the work. But I was doing the work of having to rehearse the musicians and get things together. And when they asked me questions, it was assumed that I knew the answers to those questions because I had written the piece, but all the t I didn't all the time. Um, but here's the point. I cared deeply about every dot on the page because it was something I had created. It was something that I had done. Every dot on that page meant something and was meant to produce a result. God, in a vastly more intimate way, because he does not fashion with pre-existing materials, but makes things out of nothing, he demonstrates his love and care and attention and intention in that he made us and everything else. He demonstrates his, his, his absolute care. That simple fact gives meaning to everything. That God created gives meaning to everything. There is a God who is there and he created all things. There is a reason for everything. There is an end goal for that which he has created. And he's put you right in the middle of the painting. 
right? Each and every one of you. You're walking about in God's creation above which he lives, bringing all things to their appointed end, which is the praise of his glory, as it says in Ephesians 1. You are walking about in this, 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 uh, this history and the appointed end, the climactic moment of that history is the praise of his glory. That's it. Think about it. The universe exists because God desires his glory to be praised. And we yawn through our worship. That shouldn't be. Our flesh makes us bored of the most glorious things. Our flesh does. We fight it all the time, don't we? We're bored of Scripture. We're bored of the idea that God created. We're fascinated by what Darwin wrote down, you know, 200 years ago. And yet we're, we get bored of, of what God is doing. Flesh makes us bored of the most glorious things. Our flesh dulls us to the incredible truth that a personal and perfect God made us and loves us. It really is so important. If you believe that God is God, that he himself made us, not we ourselves, that the universe is the venue in which everything happens to the end, that our triune God would be praised, that should mean, I mean, that should invigorate us, right? That should invigorate us. That should, should get us up in the morning. That should help me to give myself to every mundane task I have to do today because all of that mundane is part somehow of this cosmic show of God's blessedness. That should especially cause you and me, those who have the Holy Spirit living in us, those who know and love His Son, to shout His praises in worship. Is there anything for his created children to do that is more fitting than shout his glory in worship? No. That is the most important thing on your to-do list every day. Right? That is the top of your list. If you fail at everything else and yet you succeed in shouting God's praises to him, you have had a cosmically productive day. And yet so often we, we leave that off, right, so that we can get to what's urgent or important. The reason all people everywhere have vocal cords is what? Is it so that we can communicate with one another? Not ultimately. The reason you have vocal cords is because God is glorious and it has to be said. It must be shouted. It must be said. It must resonate around this whole earth that is His. The reason all people everywhere have their being is because God is glorious and He will be praised. Matthew 19, we learn this. 
As soon as he was approaching, as soon as Jesus was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began to praise God joyfully with loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen, shouting, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. There's that homage shout. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And then, and then it says this. You remember this, how this, the rest of the story goes. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Why? Why would, they want, why would the Pharisees want his disciples to be rebuked? Well, because they were, just, they were being obnoxious. They were raising a ruckus. They were, they, were, um, they were being undignified. Pharisees were always dignified. If they were nothing else, they were dignified or wanted to be in the sight of other men. And then Jesus answers them. So the Pharisees say, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But Jesus answered, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. Stones will cry out. God's creation will not be silent, but the stones don't have vocal cords built into them for the purpose of singing God's praise. You do. It's unnatural for a stone to cry out in praise to God. It's natural for you to cry out with praise to God. God gave those vocal cords to man, but if, if man proudly refuses to sing his praise, the stones will shame them and, and do that job that man refuses to do. God will be praised one way or the other. The intimacy of God toward his people is now expressed in this psalm. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. We are his people and we are the sheep of his pasture. We'll be singing Psalm 28 at the end of today's service during the benevolence offering. I love this, this psalm. I love this setting of this psalm. And I love the way um, the, this the idea of God being a shepherd is expressed there. I lift my song up to his throne, for he has never lost his own, but seeks me out, though far I flee, and like a shepherd carries me. So beautiful. But it's not necessarily a flattering description, is it, that we are called sheep? Sheep are quite stupid, very stupid. And if we are honest with ourselves and are able to do just a half ounce of self-examination, we know that we are quite stupid too. We're like animals and that they unthinkingly do things that harm themselves. They get their heads stuck in fences, right? You've seen animals get their heads stuck in fences and they're so stupid that they, they don't... They don't have any idea how to get their heads unstuck from those fences. The only difference between us and animals is that we willfully, not ignorantly, get our heads stuck in fences and won't take them out. We willfully sin against our good Lord. And, and even still, he tells those who believe in his son, you are mine. You are my stupid sheep. Welcome to my green pasture. Enjoy the quiet waters. My rod and my staff, they will be a comfort to you. 
What sweet peace comes with being one of God's sheep? What could we want beside being one of God's sheep? Behold, the Lord God will come with might, with his arm ruling for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. Like a shepherd, he will tend his flock. In his arm, he will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead the nursing ewes. What a glorious image. In the book of Revelation, chapter 7, we're given a picture of the protected sheep of God who come out of the great tribulation. And it says this, They will hunger no longer, nor thirst anymore, nor will the sun beat down on them, nor any heat. For the Lamb in the center of the throne will be their shepherd and will guide them to the springs of the water of life. And God will wipe every tear from their eyes. There may be some comfort in wealth, but it is only temporary. Your bank account makes for a very unfeeling shepherd. There may be some comfort in your spouse, there may be some comfort in your children, but someday they will depart from you. But with the Lord as our shepherd, even after we die and leave this world, he will be our shepherd giving us drinks of water like we've never tasted and giving us the attention that only a perfectly loving shepherd could give. Are your hearts thankful for that? Do you have any motive to sing loud praises to God Almighty? Well, that is where the psalm then goes. In a few short verses, it has reminded us of who God is and what he has committed himself to, all of which is your good and your ease and your eternal comfort, given that God has committed himself to be our God and has redeemed us by the blood of his Son, we ought to be bursting forth in both praise and thanksgiving. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name for the Lord is good. His loving kindness is everlasting. His faithfulness to all generations. Again, this section of the psalm propels us toward the praise and thanksgiving of God based again upon what? Upon his attributes. Upon what God is. And these attributes are not temporary, they are everlasting and to all generations. The psalmist reminds us that God is good, that God is merciful, and that God is faithful. So let's take each one of those in turn. God is good. God is good. That means that God is gracious, that he is kind, that he is loving. Right? Jesus taught us this about his Father. He said, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks it will be opened. Oh, what, or what man is there among you who when his son asks for a loaf will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? 
His disposition toward us is favorable because He is a good Father. He is a good Father. That does not mean that He is unwilling to discipline us, because that, in fact, would not be good, nor would it indicate His love for us. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by Him. For those whom the Lord loves, He disciplines, and He scourges every son whom He receives. So God is good, and that is proven by the ease and the hardship that he gives you. The comfort and the scourging that he gives you. I've said this many times before, but Joe Bailey, Tim and David Bailey's father, had hard dispensations from the Lord. He buried a number of his children, some in infancy, But they died because of various medical issues. But he said that he never felt the love of God more than when he stood beside the fresh burial site of one of his children. So that was a man who knew about the goodness of God. He knew the goodness of God. We as Christians can accept both good and adversity from God because we know he's good. We can accept good and adversity. So we know he's good and we know he's over all things. God is also merciful. Spurgeon says, God is not mere justice, stern and cold. He has compassion and wills not the sinner's death. Were it not for the mercy of God, our just deserts would have been eternal punishment for our sin. But the Son of God came to save dead sinners, and his whole mission was a mission of mercy. Right? There is no other way to describe what the Lord Jesus Christ did in being born of a woman, living a life of obedience under the law, and dying a shameful death upon the cross for his elect children. It is all the mercy of God. Were it not for the mercy of God, you would not be here this morning singing your praises. You would be insolent and arrogant and suppressing the truth of God and unrighteousness. You would have a heart of stone. You would have hostility toward God, the God who is love. And he would gladly demonstrate his justice in the condemnation that you had earned for yourself. What comes to mind is is the Apostle Paul's statement, in Ephesians 2, where there's that great transition of, but God. A great transition and a beautiful passage. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desire the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Jesus Christ. If that doesn't wake you up from your sleep, 
Nothing will. The mercy of God is our salvation. And we as his people wake up every morning contemplating his new and continual mercy toward us every day. God is good, God is merciful, God is also faithful. Deuteronomy 7, Know therefore that the Lord your God, He is God, the faithful God, who keeps His covenant and His loving kindness to a thousandth generation with those who love Him and keeps and keep His commandments, but repays those who hate Him to their faces to destroy them. He will not delay with Him who hates Him. He will repay Him to His face. We also learn this in 2 Timothy 2. If we are faithless, God remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. The faithfulness of God means that if God has promised it, it will come to pass. He does not forget his promises. He does not make a promise just um, like we often do just to get somebody off of our back. God does not make promises like that. He does not promise and then change his mind. He does not promise and then calculate that it wouldn't be for his good and then renege. What he promises will come to pass. At the end of the book of Joshua, after 400 years of bondage and 40 years in the wilderness, the faithfulness of God is announced this way. Not one of the good promises which the Lord had made to the house of Israel failed. All came to pass. That same promise is echoed in Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians. Faithful is he who calls us, who calls you, and he also will bring it to pass. That promise God made to crush the head of the serpent recorded in Genesis 3.15 has come to pass in the work of Jesus Christ, his son. He did not forget. Those thousands of years are like a day for God. He did not forget. He did not get distracted. He did not act like a man and say one thing and do another. No, he remembered his covenant and Jesus completed that work, declaring it is finished before he died as our Passover lamb. For as many as are the promises of God in Christ, they are yes. And so... What joy is ours in having refuge in a faithful God? He will cover you with his pinions and under his wings you may seek refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and bulwark. God will never revoke his promises. So let me conclude here. Praise and thanksgiving are the only proportionate response to the glory of God. In the face of such a good God, his people, his people must only speak good of him. That's your calling. That's your duty. That is, that is your life's work. That is your highest joy. Is it? Do you love singing God's praises and thanking Him for the eternal life you have in Jesus Christ? I mean, honestly, do you? Would you go out of your way just to spend time in praising Him? 
Would you inconvenience yourself to spend time praising him? More important than engaging in a fight with our governing authorities, which might motivate many of us to risk imprisonment and severe inconvenience. More important is being motivated to worship worship and thank God because of the greatness of his glory. He is the one true living God and his desire is your whole heart. He says, look, if you're If your mother and your father, if your sister and your brother, if your wife or your children caused you to deviate from loving me, then give up all of them for me. And you will never be disappointed. The eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. And those whose heart is completely his are those who love him and are in awe of him and who know him and who see him and who desire to be with him where he is, not even first because of the benefits that come from his nearness, but because he is awesome. And to be near him is to know more of his awesome majesty. And so may we be those those people who are first to enter his courts, who are loudest to sing his praises from, yes, faith-filled hearts. May we joyfully give thanks for his constant fatherly care because he is worthy, because he is worthy. Don't forget that. Don't let your flesh overshadow what you know to be true. Don't let the difficulties of this world so so embitter you that you, you lose sight of the fact that God is worthy. He's worthy of every moment of your attention. He's worthy of every, every sound that comes out of your vocal cords. He's worthy of all of your wealth. He's worthy of all of all that you could possibly produce. He's worthy. And so give him your praise. Sing his praises. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we pray that you would help us to discipline our our weak minds and our unfeeling hearts and our uh, short-sightedness, Father, and our forgetfulness. Oh, Lord, I pray that you you would show yourself to us, that we would see your glory as we behold it in Jesus, in your word. I pray that the children here would love to worship you. I pray that they would not buy some sort, of, some sort of idea that their vocation is the most important thing they can do in their lives. That's foolishness. To worship and honor God is first. So Father, I pray that our children would know this, they would understand it, and that this prayer 
would be heard by you and you would cause it.